something that has been seldom done before. Complete a verse-by-verse study of the book of Leviticus. Go ahead. Yep. Seldom done, probably in any era of church history, especially this particular era of church history. So uh, tonight's the last night, lesson uh, chapter 27. So uh, we will have a discussion like normal. And guys, I would love to hear maybe just the highlights tonight of the book of Leviticus as we wrap it up. And just would love to hear kind of what your highlight reel would be. Some of your personal takeaways uh, would be really interesting for me just to hear kind of what God has showed you and something you're going to take with you from our study of Leviticus. So let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Jesus, thank you for a chance once again to gather with the people of God and study the amazing word of God you've given us, Lord. Would the spirit of God, I pray tonight, teach us and train us and transform us. Lord, thank you for this book of Leviticus, the book of the priesthood. And I pray, Jesus, that it really has drawn us near to you, our high priest. That, Lord, we are see ourselves increasingly as priests of God. That we would walk in holiness before God as priests of God. That we would fulfill our priestly ministry until we see in Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus 27. It's hard to believe we're in the last chapter of the book of Leviticus. If you have made it this far, you should be commended because you have accomplished something very few modern Christians do. You have studied verse by verse through one of the books of the Bible that many modern Christians are only vaguely aware is even there, the book of Leviticus. But I hope that through this study, you have learned just how crucial and fundamental and foundational the book of Leviticus is to all of us today, even as New Testament Christians, is quoted over and over again in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles, quoted directly, specifically over 13 times just in the book of Hebrews alone. It was in the book of Leviticus that we learned such amazing New Testament themes, such as the priesthood of the believer. Remember, it's the book of the priesthood in the Old Testament as Moses is establishing the priesthood at the direction of God himself while he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, preparing to lead them into the promised land. And this is where, of course, Aaron is named the high priest of Israel, a picture of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. His sons are named as priests, not high priests, but priests. That's a picture of you and I. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. So it's in the book of Leviticus that we begin seeing the foreshadow prophetically and doctrinally of you and I as we are New Testament priests. And what does it mean to be a priest and have this priestly ministry? Of course, you see the word holiness over 80 times in the book of Leviticus. We learn that holiness and the pursuit of holiness is essential to being New Testament priests. We learned about the offerings of the priesthood, the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews and how all of them are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, it ought to be a picture of you and I as well. And all that Jesus became for us, we too 
are to become for him. It's where we learn about the tabernacle and how the Old Testament tabernacle was indeed the physical habitation of God upon the earth with its outer court, its inner court, its holy of holies, and how all of that's a picture also of you and me. We are the New Testament tabernacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit, with the outer court, our body, the inner court, our soul, and the holy of holies, our spirit, the dwelling place of God. It's here that we see the plan of the ages, the outline of God's plan for man prophetically through the seven feasts and festivals of the ancient Hebrews. It's absolutely remarkable. It's here that we saw the sabbatical rest prophesied that will one day come to the earth. A thousand years of peace and rest. Yes, that seventh day is on the way. So here we come to the book of Leviticus chapter 27. What we learn here in Leviticus 27 is it's showing us the attitude we ought to have in response to the revelation of who God is and what God is doing, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> in the book of Leviticus. And so basically as a response to this revelation, how now shall we respond to God? And that's really what Moses is doing in Leviticus 27 is for the first time, God has revealed himself to men through the written pen, through the hand of God. God is now revealing himself through a written revelation for the first time through the, the hand of Moses. And now God is preparing the people for their response to him. In other words, when we've been given such amazing revelation about who God really is and what he's done for each of us, how now shall we respond? What should be our attitude of gratitude? In chapter 27, God is dealing with voluntary gifts of the Old Testament Jews and what they could bring to God as an attitude of gratitude. Now understand, these were, of course, voluntary gifts. We're not dealing now with the five offerings specifically that we began this study with. Remember the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews, three of which were uh, uh, voluntary, uh, two of which were involuntary. We're now dealing with additional, very special voluntary gifts that the Old Testament Jews could bring to their God in a response of worship and a response of gratitude in that they have been delivered out of Egyptian tyranny and slavery. And now they're free and now they're on a journey to this land that would flow with milk and honey. Imagine being an Old Testament Hebrew at this time of history. You've lived your whole life in slavery and your parents and their parents and their parents and their parents before them for generations have lived in slavery and captivity. And now you've been redeemed. Now you've been set free. And can you imagine the gratitude these Old Testament Hebrews must have had as they're learning for the first time what it means to be free, no longer under Egyptian captivity. That's a picture of you and me, how Jesus has set us free from the slavery of sin and the tyranny of Satan. He set us on a journey to a land that would flow with milk and honey, the promised land spiritually, what Jesus calls life abundantly, and how we ought to have just such a heart of gratitude to the God that has delivered us, the God that has saved us, and how we ought to want to give back to the God that has given so much to us freely. That's really what the book of Leviticus chapter 27 is about. Historically, as well as for you and I today in some way devotionally. So let's just read down here, maybe through the first 13 verses, Leviticus 27. Here we go. It says this. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And then if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, for a female 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five shekels or five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver. And for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old above it, shall, it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels for a female 10 shekels. But if he's too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed the priest shall value him. 
If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good or bad, or good for bad, bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your evaluation. Clear as mud, isn't it? All right, so here's what's happening here in Leviticus chapter 27. A person could make an extraordinary kind of vow, a very special kind of vow to the Lord. A person could make an extraordinary offering or a vow to God based on their ability. You have, first of all, uh, the desire here in some way to serve God, to be a part of this priestly ministry. Uh, but if you were not a Levite, then you could not be a priest. Remember, the priesthood is something you had to be born into. But in some way, all of Israel could participate in the service to the tabernacle. And so uh, what's happening here, they could consecrate a vow. Look at what it says here in verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation. That word consecrate or consecration is the word sanctification. So it simply means set apart. And so a person would consecrate themselves to the Lord or set themselves apart unto God. And that's what it means now to say that I'm making a special vow or an extraordinary type of offering. We might say today in a New Testament kind of way, a, a Revelation 12.1 kind of vow, not Revelation, Romans. Romans 12.1 kind of offering or kind of vow. Remember what it says, I beseech you therefore, brother, or I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What was Paul saying to the Romans? He's saying, look, because of the mercies of God upon our life, it's only reasonable, it's only rational, that we would offer our life to God as a living sacrifice. And so in some way, that's what Leviticus 27, because of the mercies of God upon these ancient Hebrews, it's only rational, it's only reasonable. The only reasonable response is that they would give themselves back to God, the God that had given so much to them. In the same way, in a New Testament way, it's only reasonable, the Apostle Paul says, because of the mercies of God, that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, that we would consecrate ourselves to Him, that we'd separate ourselves unto Him. And so what would happen is the priest would affix the monetary value of their life based on what they could service. And so while only Levites could serve in the tabernacle, one could offer their life in service to the tabernacle. And based on what they had to offer, uh, the priest would assess a monetary value uh, to their service. And consequently, that was partly how the priestly ministry of the Old Testament Jews was financed in a just a very practical kind of way. This was a free will offering of those who were being blessed by the priestly ministry of the Levites. Now, uh, look what it says in verse 3. Not everybody was valued equally in terms of the, uh, the valuation monetarily. Verse 3, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. Now, right about here is where everybody goes, oh no, male chauvinism, like men are of more value than women. No, relax, 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 relax. That's not at all what God is doing here. Uh, everybody can, I hope, agree that men and women are absolutely equal in worth and value. But what's going on here in the Old Testament is that God was helping the priests assess value based on the ability of the one presenting themselves for service. So priestly ministry was very, very taxing, very, very hard work. And so based on the age of the one, as well as the gender of the one, not saying that everyone is an equal, but simply how much work can this one do? And so a young man from 20 to 60 
was assessed of a higher value monetarily based on his ability uh, to work in that priestly ministry. Uh, if it was an older man, the valuation went down. If it was a child, the valuation went down. So uh, it's not at all chauvinistic simply to say practically the average man physically is stronger than the average woman. Thereby, when it comes to physical labor, uh, his valuation would be more than another. And you can see that then throughout the text from the valuation of a young man from 20 to 60 years of age or a woman of that same age to uh, a child of that, uh, you know, a child from 5 to 20 or even an infant from infant to 5. You can see that valuation is kind of prorated based on the value in terms of the labor of uh, what they could produce and what they could lift. And so one could offer themselves at any age to the priestly ministry. And uh, based on what he could do in terms of his ability physically, uh, the priest would assess the value monetarily, and then he would pay that as an offering. In the same way we'd offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, uh, they would offer in some way, consecrate themselves to the priestly ministry, to the ministry of the tabernacle, and financially, it was their way of participating in that priestly ministry, even though they themselves were not priests, and they could take these very special vows, consecrating themselves uh, to the priestly ministry. Now, the principles of these special vows, first of all, I want you to notice, they were paying for the privilege of serving God. And I want you to see this today. You know, sometimes people hear, especially when we do maybe an emphasis on our global outreach or world missions. Uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19? He said, Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And sometimes I'm afraid the attitude, I've heard it even preached before, well, some of us give so that others can go. I want you to notice how completely wrong that is biblically. We're all called to give, and we're all called to go. In other words, nobody can say, well, I give financially so others can do the work, or I give money so others can go be a missionary. See, we're all called to give. We're all called to go. We're all called to give financially and be faithful to the ministry financially, monetarily, yet also participate in the ministry. Nobody gets to say, well, uh, I, uh, I, I write my check and I finance the ministry so others can do the work. See, we're all called to do both. And that's exactly what's going on here in some way. Nobody gets to say, well, I'll do the work, but I don't have to contribute financially or I'll contribute financially so others can do the work. In essence, what they were doing is they're paying for the privilege of serving God. Uh, they are paying for the privilege. They're saying, let me participate and I'm even willing to pay my worth because I can't be a priest. But in some way, I want to participate in the ministries of the priest. Next, I want you to know something. Giving was according to one's own ability. Look at what it says here in verse 8. It says, But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him, who vowed the priest shall value him. So if one was too poor to pay, uh, maybe verse 3, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, your valuation shall be of 50 shekels of silver. So let's say you fit within the age and you're a male and your, your work is valued at 50 shekels of silver, but you're poor, you don't have 50 shekels of silver. Then the priest would assess your situation and he would assess financially what you would pay according to your ability. Once you see how practical God is and all that he does, he does not expect equal gifts from everybody. He expects equal sacrifice from everybody. It's the story of the widows too much. Remember what Jesus said as he watched so many giving money financially in the temple and the wealthy and the rich were coming, making a big spectacle of how much they were giving and then this little widow comes in, this, this little woman with this, 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 this two mites. I mean, we're talking almost penniless, but she gave all that she had. And, and Jesus said she gave more than all the others before. You know why? Because 
she didn't have the ability of the others, but proportionately she gave more than the others. You see, that is what matters now to the heart of God. That's what's going on here. And so he doesn't expect the same uh, financially from everybody because we don't all have the same ability. It says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, and we're going to see a New Testament in some way example or commentary on what we just read here in Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 8. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one, what one does not have. And so God is never going to judge you based on what you didn't do, but rather what you did do with what you had to do. He's never going to judge you because somebody else gave more than you or did more than you. He's going to judge you based on what you had and how faithful you were with what you had. What is God looking for? He's looking for a willing mind. That's the issue, a willing mind. Remember, this was a free will offering. Nobody was going to make these Old Testament Hebrews do any of this. This is something they willingly did out of their love for God and a response uh, to the God that had given them so much and delivered them from so much. God simply wants a willing mind, a willing heart. 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 7, that God loves a, a cheerful giver. In other words, nobody's going to manipulate you. Nobody's going to coerce you. Nobody's going to threaten you. Nobody's going to guilt you. Guilt is generally a horrible way of motivating people because people aren't motivated as long as the guilt lasts. And eventually, uh, the guilt wears off. What God wants to motivate you with is a genuine love for Him. Out of your love for Him, because of His love for you. And so what God is teaching the Old Testament Hebrews, what He wants to teach us today, that generosity is not simply a commodity of the wealthy. Generosity is something for everybody, rich and poor. God expects each of us to give according to our own unique ability. Uh, now, the third thing is this. Listen carefully. They were offering their livelihood to the Lord. Look at verse 9. If it's an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. And so uh, in these days, think about animals. Animals weren't just pets. It wasn't a family pet. People didn't feed animals just to be a pet. People fed animals because they were there for labor. They were there for work. They were there for your livelihood. So if you had a donkey, a burro, maybe you had a horse, a camel, you could dedicate that to the Lord. This was one's livelihood. In essence, you were dedicating your income to the Lord before you even made it. Uh, you are dedicating your source of income. You're dedicating your livelihood. Um, that doesn't mean you were taking a vow of poverty. You were simply saying, God, I am going to dedicate not just my tithe, but I'm going to dedicate the whole. I'm going to dedicate 100% of what I make because you own 100% of what I make. And that doesn't mean God is going to take 100% of what you make, but it's recognizing God owns 100% of what you make. And so an Old Testament Hebrew uh, could dedicate their livelihood, in this case, their animal, their beast of burden, the one that was going to plow the field, the one that was going to pull the cart. And they were saying, I'm going to dedicate the worth, the value of this animal. And every time that, uh, that, that I get a harvest, I'm not just going to bring uh, the tenth or the tithe of that harvest but I'm going to add to that tithe the valuation of this animal. Uh, and that's what some people even to do today. I know somebody right now who's a real estate agent, and they have dedicated the next four or five sales that they make, whatever number it is, to a specific missions project, a specific missions endeavor that our church is currently doing. Now, nobody's told them to do that. God hasn't mandated they do that, but God has put that on their heart to do that, that whatever it is, four, five, six sales, whatever it takes to make this money, I'm not just going to tithe on it. I'm not just going to give a tenth on it. I'm going to give all of it to the Lord to complete this missions project in a foreign country. And that's what a lot of people do. They're dedicating their livelihood to the Lord. J.C. Penney's, of course, most of you recognize that name, J.C. Penney's in a lot of American malls. He was known to live on 10% of, uh, 
of what he made and give 90% away to the Lord. He turned that tithe on his head. Uh, and that, uh, that's a, a voluntary response to somebody who knows they have been redeemed and blessed by God with so very much. Now look at verse 10. It says this, He shall not substitute or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be holy. In essence, listen, once you made a vow, you could never change your mind. That's what God is saying here. Because God knew that, you know, it's easy to give away, let's say, an oxen, your beast of burden, your livelihood, when it's young. It hadn't made you any money yet. But all of a sudden, it matures, and it's starting to give you a big return on investment, ROI, and that's kind of easy to hedge on that value made because all of a sudden you're starting to make some money. You're starting to make a lot of money. What God is saying, listen, I didn't make you make that vow because you made that vow of your own free will, good or bad, bad or good. It was a promise you made to me. Now, don't, don't go back on your word. Vows are very, very important to God. So don't make a vow uh, and try to bargain with God in the heat of the moment, in some crisis moment, God, get me out of this, and I will do X, Y, Z. Not a good idea, because what comes out of your mouth, the word of your testimony, Revelation 12 and verse 11, listen, it means everything to God. God keeps his word. The question is, will you? Look at what it says in Ecclesiastes 3, I should say 5 and verse 4. It says this, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have sowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Uh, that comes right out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Flip over uh, just a few pages to the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to see. Uh, and what God is going to deliver through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 23 is uh, the flip side. Kind of a, uh, just an added commentary on what we're reading right here. In Leviticus chapter 27, he says this in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 23, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So God is saying, hey, when it comes to these, these offerings, I, I'm not asking you to do it. I'm not making you do it. You, you did this of your own free will. If you make a promise, be a promise keeper, not just a promise maker. Don't be a promise breaker. God is a God, is a, is a God of his word. And so as the people of God, he's saying, be a person of your word. Don't take back what you have promised you're going to give of your own free will. Now, dedications to the Lord, we see in verses 14 through uh, uh, 25 here, in verses 14 through 25, he goes on, there's more detail, what he details here. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it. Whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so shall it, be, uh, so shall it stand. So uh, a man could dedicate his house to the Lord. He says in verse 15, if he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the year that years that remain till the year of jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore, but the field, when it is released to the, in the jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. If a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of jubilee, 
and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession, and all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. And so what's going on here? Well, men um, were able to dedicate almost anything they had in their possession. They could dedicate themselves, first of all, and their ability in terms of well, what they could offer that priestly ministry, and and the priest would uh, would uh, would tell them the valuation accordingly based on their age and based on their gender and just on a practical sense uh, what they could do in terms of uh, the physically demanding task of that priestly ministry. But uh, but you might have been a, a farmer. You had a field. This is something you want to dedicate. Or you're a homeowner, you have a house, it's something you want to dedicate. Everything was assessed a monetary value. And then consequently, the people could dedicate the monetary value of their homes, their farms, and even their fields to God. And so where a farmer was, uh, was mandated to bring the tithe into the storehouse, or you know the tithe into the temple... Uh, and for the Old Testament Hebrew, it was actually two tithes plus a third. If you break down the, the tithes of the Old Testament Hebrews, but this is something they were doing beyond the tithe. They weren't just bringing the first fruits, the tithe of the barley and of the wheat harvest. They were adding to it the valuation of that field based on its production, and they were adding that then to their offering as a free will offering or you know, uh, we have uh, county assessors come and assess uh, the value of our homes, and then we pay property taxes accordingly. But imagine in some way, long before there was a county assessor assessing a value of your home, and you're mandated to pay this in some way rent to the county, you were willingly coming to the priest saying, my home is worth something, and maybe I don't have a field to offer, uh, maybe I'm an older man and, and I don't have a, a lot of, to offer in terms of what I can do physically, but I have this home and I want to I contribute to this ministry based on the valuation of the home. Today we call it asset giving. You know, a lot of people, when they give financially to the work of the ministry or to missions, they go back to their cash assets uh, and what they can liquidate. They literally write a check or bring cash or whatever it is. That's what the, uh, the offering looks like most of the time. But listen, uh, there are some who give off their assets. They're not just going to give cash. And there's assets that you've accumulated, and your home is one of them. Well, guess what? That's been going on since the ancient Hebrews. Uh, I'm going to give off the asset. My home is an asset. I want to give based on the assets of my home. You see, Jews from other times couldn't work, uh, from other tribes could not work in the priestly ministry. So what they were doing is they would donate money, the monetary value of their lives, so these priests could operate the tabernacle. Remember, the priest was the only tribe, the Levites, that was given no land allotment in the promised land. The reason they were not allotted any land was because they were not going to be farmers. They were not going to have the crops and the flocks. They were going to be about one thing, the tabernacle and the priestly ministry and intercession before God. And so consequently, their livelihood was built on the other tribe's support. They were allowed to eat of those offerings except for the burnt offering that we studied early on in Leviticus. But then in addition to that, uh, they would be supported by many of these offerings that we're now studying uh, in Leviticus chapter 27. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 25. God is very specific about this valuation. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. I want you to notice something about this. God doesn't do anything without a standard. So God knows, just like today, people manipulate the standard of money. All right, people manipulate the worth of a dollar. Uh, the markets will manipulate the worth of a euro or whatever currency you want to talk about. And so God is saying, we're going to have a standard. So we're not going to manipulate the, the valuation of that donkey or the valuation of that home or the valuation even of, of one's life in terms of what they can offer, what they could offer in terms of 
the physically demanding work of the tabernacle. He says that you're, the standard is going to be uh, the shekel and the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. So God is very specific here. Uh, no money changers going on in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. That would happen later on in the New Testament temple. There's always a standard. God always works off an absolute standard. There's no arbitrary opinion needed. And the Bible, of course, is God's absolute standard that God uses, and it should be the absolute standard and final authority for each of our lives. Now, I want you to notice as we close, there are two things Jews could not dedicate as a special vow to the Lord. And the reason they couldn't dedicate these as a special vow to the Lord is because they already belonged to the Lord. God's saying, hey, don't, don't bring a voluntary offering to me that's already something I have already. All right? So he goes on, verse 25. Let's go ahead and start in verse 26. He says, But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man should dedic shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation." Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction um, among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the hand or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. In other words, uh, if, if you wanted to redeem what you'd given away, for example, you, you, uh, you sold your donkey or your beast of burden, or maybe you sold your land, the valuation of it, to the priestly ministry, God is saying, you can't go back on your vow but I will rent it back to you. In other words, you could rent your own land that you had given to the Lord for one-fifth of its worth. He goes on, verse 32, And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy it shall be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So basically you see two things that one could not give to the Lord as a special offering. And the reason why is it already belonged to the Lord. First of all was the firstborn. Uh, God demanded the firstborn of all the livestocks, um, whether it was a goat or a lamb or whether it was a a donkey or a camel or an oxen, the firstborn always belong to the Lord. And so consequently, don't give this as a special offering because it's just the basic. And there's nothing special about giving God what amounts to God's already. The second thing was the tithe. So every tenth animal that was uh, born, let's say, of this, this, this goat, this female, whatever it was, uh, the tenth all belonged to the Lord. It was it was the tithe. And so uh, God is saying, that's mine already. Don't use one of them and make this special vow to make this a special offering. Don't try to give something special to God when it already belongs to him anyway. And so I just want you to think in terms of your own life. Sometimes I think we, we look for the bare minimum. What can I give to God that won't cost me too much? What can I give to God where I'm going to be in a right relationship with God, that God's going to be proud of me, He's going to be pleased with me, but, but just tell me what the bare minimum is. Listen, that's why in the New Testament, there's almost never a mention about the tithe. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's called grace giving, as God has given each one their own ability, so give back to the Lord. The principle is generosity, and what is generous for one person is not generous at all for another. And so instead of thinking about the tithe, which means a tenth, listen, start thinking about the cost. 
Start thinking about the sacrifice when we give back to God. Because if it costs nothing, then one has to wonder, is it really an act of worship? And that's what's at stake when we think about worship. Giving to God what is already His or giving to God what is more than is already His. And the truth is, we've all been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ, He owns all that we have. He owns all that we are. And what that means is not really how much of my money should I give to God. It should become how much of God's money should I keep for myself. It's not how much of my time should I use as I serve the Lord. It's how much of God's time should I use to serve myself. You see, when we start looking at things that way, I will promise nothing will ever be the same, and we will fulfill the priestly ministry God has given us as New Testament believers. Guys, I love you so much. Let's walk this out in our lives. God bless you. Leviticus 27. Put it in the books. So uh, who's got something? Anybody? Questions, thoughts, comments, Nancy? Okay. I have so enjoyed reading this, you know, and then seeing what God gave you out of the verses and what God has brought to my mind out of the verses and, you know, in the perspective and do they line up or not. And reading down through here that God, you know, that it said to add a fifth, add a fifth, add a fifth, you know, to it. And when you come back up here to verse um, 11, 12, and 13, if it's an unclean animal, King James says it was an unclean uh, beast, you know, and I'm not talking about humans, but I knew I was unclean, okay? And I've been called the B word before, so I figured that, that fit in there somewhere, <clears throat> you know? And that God tithed the first fruits. He gave the first fruits to begin with, his Jesus. And Jesus was the perfect, you know, apostle, prophet, evangel, preacher, and teacher. He had that perfect fivefold ministry. And so when I was reading down through here, if it's an unclean, unclean, and I was unclean, the priest shall set a value, okay? And if he redeems it back, and God redeemed me back, then he adds a fifth to it. And did he add out of that fivefold ministry, did he add a fifth? of the fivefold ministry to each one of us that he redeemed back to us. And that's why some are apostles, some are uh, preachers, pastors, you know, evangelists and teachers and everything. That not only has he given us, you know, our redeemed life, but he added a fifth of the fivefold perfect ministry back to each one of us as he saved us. It's good, Nancy. Good work there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that it's not as clear, maybe, but in the years of Jubilee, when they're standing there, it said, here's the evaluation that it said, God, priests, that you set, here's your evaluation. And in Revelations, it says not that your name will be added to the book of life, but it says that your name will be blotted from the book of life. So every one of us, before you know, God knew us before we were born. Our name was in the book of life, and he set a value on us. And when we stand in the year of Jubilee at that great white throne of judgment and stuff, it said that, you know, here's your value. Do you deduct from it because of it before, you know, the, before the Jubilee, the, year, the value before the Jubilee, or do you add to it? And I could see that as if, in the, in the judgment, in the year of Jubilee, if you've added to your evaluation, you know, before or after, you know, that year, then there's the crowns. If they're going to deduct the value because, you know, have gone back, you know, that's when your name is blotted out of the book of life and the deduction is not good. So remember the three applications of scripture. You've got the historical application, the doctrinal application, devotional application, right? So you're doing some really good devotional work there. All right, remember the historical application as you study scripture, you answer the question, what happened? 
It's real history. And so that part's always easy, right? Leviticus is easy when you understand just the history. You got Moses receiving the revelation from God for the first time. God is revealing himself through the pen of men. He's doing it in the wilderness wanderings from Egypt before they've entered the promised land. That's the history. You got the doctrinal application. And we've seen the doctrinal application. It's the book of the priesthood. We've seen how Aaron is a picture doctrinally of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. How his sons doctrinally are a picture of us. Not high priests, but priests of God. Uh, We saw the doctrinal application of those five offerings. Each of them doctrinally painting a picture of Jesus and what he would be at Calvary. And that he would offer himself freely for us. Uh, So we've seen the doctrinal application throughout this entire book, haven't we? Now what you're doing is, I think, really good devotional application. It always answers the question, how does this apply to my life? And this is why people don't like the book of Leviticus, because they look at it and go, gee, how does this apply to my life? And you can begin to see how every single page in some way applies so perfectly, and I would even say precisely, even for us living 3,400 years later in the 21st century, uh, to have an understanding personally, of what it means now to be a priest, 1 Peter 2.5, 1 Peter 2.9. 80, I think, six times in the book of Leviticus, you see this word holy or holiness to the Lord. Uh, What does the modern church, I think, lack maybe more than anything? Holiness. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians? Uh, That he wanted to present them to Jesus as a chaste, virgin bride and see my point is this you can't fulfill your priestly ministry if you're not pursuing what is holy a holy life so uh it's it's really really good what you've done nancy i mean in terms of just devotional personal application in your life today it's really really good and connecting those dots for you there yeah somebody else anybody yeah gail One month old. Okay. Read verse 6, would you please? Uh, if a person is from one month to five years old, your assessment for a male is five silver shekels, and for a female, your assessment is three silver shekels. Yeah. So once again, the uh, evaluation, the monetary evaluation for every person was based on two things, the age and the gender. And so... Um, so five shekels, um, children, children couldn't accomplish much work, much labor. Not at one. Huh? Not at one month. No, you're right. They can't, they can't do anything. So consequently, the valuation was far less than, say, a, a male from 20 to 60 that was assessed a valuation of 50 shekels. This would have been, they weren't expecting anything. my child what are you actually bowing to do uh so remember only levites could actually serve in the tabernacle and so what somebody if you were not of the tribe of levi but you wanted to take part in the priestly ministry you wanted to have a part in the ministry of the tabernacle uh you could as we said dedicate anything uh and in this case you were dedicating your worth in terms of a labor what could a man do in terms of an average day's labor, the, the, the working wage, let's say? Uh, and so the priest would evaluate based on what they could actually do, physically speaking. Uh, and in this case, a one-month-old to a five-year-old couldn't do much of anything, which is why their evaluation was five shekels compared to a full-grown male's 50 shekels. And so what that family was doing is uh, they were dedicating their child to the Lord, to the uh, priestly ministry, uh, and they were handing over five shekels as a part of their offering to support the priesthood. Yeah. Potential as a male, he'll someday be able to do that. Would that be well, in this case, it was based on their potential right then where they were, because as you notice... Everything was prorated. Once a man hit 60, 
his value went down. I mean, the 60, you know, 60s, the new middle age, you know, but 3,400 years ago, you know, the average life expectancy was like 40. If you were 60, I mean, you'd done well, lived a long life, but you weren't expected to do a lot of labor. You weren't going to get a lot of work done. And so his valuation fell off then, right? So it was a prorated system just based on the practical ability of that one working in the ministry. You know, hey, here's the reality, guys. We, we, we don't picture the priestly ministry probably in the right mindset because, you know, we think of priests today and their priestly garb and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very clean and pristine environment. Everything is all pressed and it's perfect and the reality is the priestly ministry in the Old Testament was dirty, it was bloody, it was ugly, it was sweaty. I mean, all day long they are picking up, lifting wood, they're lifting livestock, they're putting it on the altar. I hate to be graphic here, but they're holding down animals that are trying to get away. And yeah, so we'll stop right there, Denise. Yeah, she's a farm girl, doesn't father, doesn't father her. So here's the point. It was a very physically taxing job. And so this evaluation was based on a human being's ability to do the work. In this case, the work, the labor of the ministry. And then it was true of anything. You could dedicate anything, as you could see. You could have dedicated your house. You could have dedicated your field. You could dedicate your animal. The animal that's going to make you a living. And so that was how then the non-priestly tribes could participate in the priestly ministry. And then just practically, it's what helps support the priests financially. They were able to eat. Their family was provided food, remember? We talked months and months ago uh, from the offerings. The only offering they could not eat was the burnt offering. Why? Because it was what? It was completely consumed on the altar, in the fire. But everything else, a portion would be consumed in the fire, and then they'd be allowed to eat of the rest. The fat went to the Lord. The The choice pieces went to the Lord. Do you guys remember this story? Um, In 1 Samuel, the story of Eli and his priestly ministry, and how in the days of Eli, you had his two sons, that the Lord finally said, you boys are done, kills them. Eli falls off the back of, uh, you know, something, and he dies. Samuel becomes the next priest. Well, why, why did God judge them? One of the reasons God judged them is because they had been eating what? The fat that belonged to the Lord. They had found out the choice parts and the back strap and the tenderloin. Decided, you know what? We don't like this shoulder meat. We like the good stuff. We like the good cuts. And God was very specific. No, the fat belongs to me. It represented the richness of life. You know, we live in a new age of, you know, lean cuisine. But in the ancient days, as I'm telling you, if you were healthy and seen as wealthy, uh, you were eating fat because there wasn't much of it. Well, it tells us he was obese. And the reason he was obese is because he'd been living off the part of the sacrifices that God said, oh, no, that's mine, not yours. Sure. So um, practically speaking, the point I'm making, the offerings were part of their provision. And think about it. By the time of Christ, there were hundreds of priests, hundreds of priestly families. Okay? They didn't all work in the tabernacle. Uh, but there were hundreds and hundreds of Levites. Um, so practically speaking, this was part of their provision. But beyond that, beyond just the, the physical food element, they had other physical needs too that would demand some shekels. And so this was partly how uh, the priests were supported through this valuation. Yeah. Sure. Hang on just a minute, because we like to put this uh, Q&A out on the web as well for people that can't be here. 
just something that's going on in my head whenever we're talking about dedicating children. One month to five years, you pay so much, and then once they turn five years, do you go ahead and pay another amount? And then once they reach 20, they went ahead and paid another amount. Yeah. Is that correct? That's okay. exactly right. Every year? No, it wouldn't have been every year. It would have been like a you know, one-time payment. So... You bring your little month old to the priest, say, I want to dedicate him to the priestly ministry, five shekels, okay? Um, he hits 20, 50 shekels. But you remember, it was very clear that everyone would give only based on their ability. If they couldn't afford the 50 shekels, the priest would assess their situation and say, okay, how about this much? So the Lord is very, very practical. As we've talked a lot, and I promise, you know, I'm not smart enough to line this lesson up with the last four weeks on Sunday mornings either, but uh, the, the Lord is very practical. He's very pragmatic. He doesn't expect everything to be the same from everybody. We've all been uniquely blessed with different ability, so what he wants is for us to give proportionately based on our ability. Somebody else? Anybody? Anybody want to go maybe do a highlight reel? What would make the highlight reel book of Leviticus for you? Somebody? Yeah. I've just used your phrase of holiness a lot with others whenever I tell them I'm going to this Bible study and they're like, Whoa, you know, and I'll go, it's all about being holy. Yeah. I think that's very practical and can be related. It is. I mean, it's challenging even me personally, guys. I mean, it is so easy in the age in which we live. You know, there's a song that's been out a long, long time. I think it's Casting Crowns. It's a slow fade when you give your heart away. It's a slow fade. It happens so subtly, so slowly. You don't even realize you're adjusting your eyes to see in the dark. We're not made to see in the dark. We're children of light. 1 John 1, 7, walk in the light as he is in the light. And we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But what have we done in this modern church age? Instead of walking in the light, we start walking in the gray because we no longer recognize the light from the darkness. It's a slow fade. And uh, so, you know, he, you know, here's where I've come to. We're kind of, I've come full circle on a lot of things recently. What I mean by that is, you know, if, if there's anything that the book of Leviticus highlights is that there's no in-between. It's either holy or it's not. It's either clean or it's not. It's either pure or it's not. And sometimes I think society at large and even those we love within the body can kind of just start to wear you down, where your tolerance level goes up for things it shouldn't. You know, how many times do you hear this? Well, especially if you have kids, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Well, this music or a movie, it's just got one bad scene. Come on. Well, here's the point it's either holy or it's unholy. It's either clean or it's unclean. And so uh, I've just kind of come full circle on some things in terms of even like my own television viewing, let's say. My own, uh, you know, movies I'm going to watch, for example. Um, because, because in the end, Jesus is holy. He is an all-consuming fire. You know, what are we doing Where's the chaste virgin bride? Chastity. It's about purity. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, that's a, obviously a major theme in the book of Leviticus. It's impossible to function as New Testament priests if we're not pursuing lives that are holy. Somebody else? Anybody? Yeah. Mark, about to say, your valuation is going down, buddy. <laughs> well, I've, you've taught so many wonderful things from this book. God's taught us. One thing that really stays with me, though, 
that I'm taking home with me is that our bodies, we are the tabernacle. Yeah. And we have got to remember that. Yeah. And what goes in our mouth, what comes out our mouth, what goes in our heads, what comes, you know, all of that. We are set aside if we were supposed Listen, to be. The mind of God is just so infinitely genius, isn't it? I mean, the way he puts things together. In the Old Testament, we learn that he provided a sacrifice, a priest, and a place. In the New Testament, we find that we are the sacrifice, we are the priest, and we are the place. It's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? That we are the tabernacle, the place of worship. We are the sacrifice, the person of worship. And we are the priest offering up those offerings unto God daily. And of course, you know, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we're priests of God offering up spiritual sacrifices unto God. And what sacrifice is he referring to? The Romans 12.1 sacrifice. I'm a living sacrifice. Just incredible, isn't it? It really is. To think in terms of that every single day. And you know, our, a lot of our modern lingo in church life is just biblically wrong, isn't it? Um, and we talked some about it in our study in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, and more than Sundays, that series. Like most Christians, when they picture the church, they picture what? A building. That's not the church. Uh, you go inside that building, and a lot of churches, over the most prominent door inside, it will have a sign that says what? Worship center. That's not the worship center. See, what we learn is we are the church. And we are the worship center. We are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. That means worship doesn't end just because Sunday ends. We take worship with us. Our hearts are his home. Our hearts are his habitation. And that means worship is something that happens 24-7. It's good. Good. Anybody else? Oh, you're, well, you're welcome. Praise the Lord. Thank Him. Thank Him. Don't know. So, uh, actually, should, Denise brings up Romans. We've talked about Romans recently, Denise. We have. Doing a verse-by-verse verse through Romans. It's, it's going uh, to be quite a commitment. 16 chapters, and I promise we will not do one chapter a week. I mean, there's a lot, lot of content there. I've always wanted to study Roman in depth. Yeah. And I'm in precept on Tuesday mornings, mm -hmm. and we're doing First Samuel. That's why I knew about Eli and the fat and whatever. Mm -hmm. But I, I kept asking you when they were trying to decide, can you do Romans? Will you? Is it, is it Samuel's great? Yeah. I want to do Romans. Yeah. So um, it's getting to where my my demands on Sunday afternoons are getting uh, increasingly. Um, heavy duty. So I don't know what this is going to look like next year. The well, for sure. I could see uh, doing Romans like on Sunday morning, supplementing some of it on a, maybe a Sunday afternoon. We've talked a lot about maybe using this time kind of strategically for Q&A and let people actually maybe text in questions ahead of time. And uh, we, we did that several years ago and had some really, really good Sunday evenings with letting people ask anything, kind of an open Bible study, open Q&A, that kind of thing. So uh, not sure what we're going to do after this, but we'll figure it out. Well, if you have videos online, then anybody could access them at any time. Yeah, that's why we did the Revelation Leviticus videos, so we can have them available and people can access them for years to come. So, have I done Genesis? So, if you've been in our church a long, long time, you know I love the book of Genesis. And I don't know how long ago it was now that we did Genesis, but I did Genesis verse by verse. It's, uh, that was three years. You talk about a commitment. It's 50 chapters. Leviticus is 27 chapters. So, the answer is I will come back to Genesis someday. Um, but not planning to right away. Before uh, I pass the baton someday and ride off into the sunset, wherever that will be, be I will be shekel. doing I will be doing Genesis again. I promise you that. When I'm on my last shekel. When you're on your last shekel. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah. It's not online right, right now, though, is no, it? Genesis, you can still get the Genesis series probably on CD. You could order it on CD. You could order it on audio still. It's available for order on audio, but we don't have, we don't have a video lesson series of Genesis. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So a study of heaven, Gail, Gail's vote is for a study of heaven. You know, I feel like that's, that's, that could be Sunday morning material there. And then we could do right after the study of heaven, a study of hell. Huh? <laughs> yeah, choose door A or choose door B. <laughs> Guys, I love you a bunch. So at 6 o'clock, we have our quarterly business meeting. If you want to stick around, feel free. If you don't want to, I will not be offended, I promise you. 6.30. We've got our walkthrough over in Blue Springs. I haven't actually been there or seen it since the last walkthrough, and that was a couple months ago. So uh, if you're interested in that, that's where we'll be heading over about 6.30. But I'm going to pray for us. Love you guys. Thank you for loving the Word of God. Jesus, we thank you that you are the living Word, and you have given us the written Word. And I pray, God, in heaven that we would be people of the book. That, Lord, it would transform us, not intellectually, that it would never be just a pursuit academically, but, Lord, truly a pursuit of knowing you, becoming more and more like you. So, Lord, we're stewards of what you've given us. Lord, you've said to whom much is given, much is required. You've given us much. Deep revelation that comes from your word, and specifically the book of Leviticus. Would you help us to walk this out, to take this with us? as living tabernacles of God, priests of God, worshipers of God. I pray, God, for every person here tonight that your blessing would abound upon their life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.